0: As we open God's Word, you can um, turn in your Bibles to Psalm 35, page 548 in your pew Bibles where we read another Psalm of David, um, this one with regard to his enemies who he asks the Lord to contend with, Psalm 35, beginning at verse 1, contend, O Lord, with those who contend with me, fight against those who fight against me. Take hold of shield and buckler and rise for my help. Draw the spear and javelin against my pursuers. Say to my soul, I am your salvation. Let them be put to shame and dishonor who seek after my life. Let them be turned back and disappointed who devise evil against me. Let them be like chaff before the wind, with the angel of the Lord driving them away. Let their way be dark and slippery, with the angel of the Lord pursuing them. For without cause, they hid their net for me. Without cause, they dug a pit for my life. Let destruction come upon him when he does not know it, and let the net that he hid ensnare him, let him fall into it to his destruction. Then my soul will rejoice in the Lord, exalting in his salvation. All my bones shall say, O Lord, who is like you? Delivering the poor from him who is too strong for him. The poor and needy from him who robs him. Malicious witnesses rise up. They ask of me, or they ask me of things that I do not know. They repay me evil for good. My soul is bereft. But when they were sick, I wore sackcloth. I afflicted myself with fasting, I prayed with head bowed on my chest, I went about as though I grieved for my friend or my brother as one who laments his mother, I bowed down in mourning. But at my stumbling they rejoiced and gathered, they gathered together against me wretches whom I did not know tore at me without ceasing like profane mockers at a feast, they gnashed at me with their teeth. How long, O oh Lord, will you look on? Rescue me from their destruction, my precious life from the lions. I will thank you, the great congregation, and the mighty throng, I will praise you. Let not those who rejoice over me, who are wrongfully my foes, And let not those wink the eye who hate me without cause. For they do not speak peace, but against those who are quiet in the land, they devise words of deceit. They open wide their mouths against me. They say, Aha, aha, our eyes have seen it. You have seen, O Lord. Be not silent. O Lord, be not far from me, awake, and rouse yourself for my vindication, for my cause, my God and my Lord. Vindicate me, O Lord, my God, according to your righteousness, and let them not rejoice over me. Let them not say in their hearts, aha, our heart's desire. Let them not say we have swallowed him up. Let them be put to shame and disappointed altogether who rejoice at my calamity. Let them be clothed with shame and dishonor who magnify themselves against me. Let those who delight in my righteousness shout for joy and be glad. And say evermore, great is the Lord who delights in the welfare of his servant. Then my tongue shall tell Of your righteousness and of your praise all the day long. We can turn to Matthew chapter 5, where we'll read a New Testament reading from the Sermon on the Mount on page 964 in your Pew Bible. Matthew 5, we'll read beginning at verse 43 through the end of the chapter, verse 48. Do not even the tax collectors do the same? And if you greet only your brothers, what more are you doing than others? Do not even the Gentiles do the same? You, therefore, must be perfect as your heavenly Father is perfect. I think the The question on many of your minds after reading those two passages back to back is is probably how in the world do we reconcile the, the son of David's command to love your enemy and pray for those who persecute you and this prayer of the first David for their judgment? Are not these two forms of prayer Incompatible. How do we reconcile the psalmist's cry for judgment and the New Testament ethic of love? Um, perhaps you've wondered that before, or perhaps you've, you've even heard various solutions to this problem. Um, some suggest that this is simply an inferior Old Testament ethic that, that we've moved beyond. Um, others suggest that David is actually sinning when he penned this prayer. But either one of these solutions are problematic for if we believe that all of Scripture is God-breathed and yet David sinned in writing this, and that would introduce an imperfection to the writings of Holy Scripture. Um, or if we believe that, that this prayer in Psalm 35 is, is simply the, the inferior ethic of the Old Testament that we have since moved beyond, then that presents a problem with regard to what Jesus says earlier in Matthew 5 that he came not to abolish the Old Testament. And in fact, calls us elsewhere in the New Testament to sing the Psalms with no qualification. And so these two solutions simply do not satisfy. And so we're left to wonder, how are we to understand these cries for justice? What I want to provide you with this afternoon as we look at Psalm 35 are, are seven uh, sort, of, sort of helps from this psalm in approaching this so-called uh, problem of the psalms of judgment and the New Testament um, teaching about love. Um, seven, seven sort of guiding principles. And as we do that, I'll just give one word of, of preface. Uh, maybe you think that this is just kind of a, an unnecessary, irrelevant Topic to even even concerns ourselves with. If that's you. I would ask you to think about this. Um, in fact, I would invite you to turn um, in your Bible to the very beginning of the Psalms and notice that the prevalence of these prayers and promises of judgment in Psalm one verses four through six. It tells us that. The wicked are going to be driven away like chaff. Verse 5, they will not stand in the judgment. Verse 6, the way of the wicked will perish. And we turn to the next psalm, Psalm 2, verses 10 to 12. It says that the kings of the earth are called to, to kiss the son lest he be angry and they perish in the way. He break them, verse 9, with a rod of iron. In Psalm 3 the end, verse 7, verses 7 and 8, David speaks of God striking his enemies on the cheek and breaking the teeth of the wicked. Psalm 4, command is given to be angry and not sin. Psalm 5, David says that God hates all evildoers and will destroy those who speak lies. And he asks God to make them bear their guilt and let them fall by their own counsel. Psalm 6, verse 10 says, all his enemies will be ashamed and greatly troubled. Psalm 7, arise, O Lord, in your anger. Lift yourself up against the fury of your enemies. Let the evil of the wicked come to an end. His mischief return upon his own head, and on his skull, his violence descends. Psalm 8 speaks of God stealing the enemy. And the avenger, Psalm 9, of God letting the nations before him be judged, and Psalm 10, of them being caught in the schemes that they've devised, and God lifting up his hand to break the arm of the wicked and to call their wickedness to account. And that's just the first ten psalms. From just a brief survey of the, the opening ten psalms in, in the Psalter, you see that these kinds of prayers for judgment are pervasive, In the Psalter. As one theologian says, to cut out these um, cries for judgment from the Psalter would leave it as tattered as Thomas Jefferson's edition of the Gospels, where he cut out all the miracles and hardly anything was left. So, if we cut out every reference in the Psalms to judgment on the enemies of God, little would be left. Defending the Psalms of judgment is nothing less than defending the Psalter itself, the book that has been at the very heart of the devotional life of the church for three millennia. I heard of one pastor who said, whatever we do in ministry, we do in light of the Psalter. We counsel, we, we comfort, whether consciously or unconsciously, from the wisdom of the Psalms. It is the book of the Bible that that most directly informs our public worship. It is the book of the Bible um, most directly related to pastoral care. It is the book of the Old Testament most frequently cited by the New Testament with reference to Christ. It is, as Martin Luther said, a mini-Bible, every doctrine of Scripture contained in it. And so a defense of these psalms, a defense of these these cries of judgment in in order to defend the psalter itself is no insignificant thing. But we need to know how to understand these psalms. So this afternoon, I want to give you seven helps. We might better understand how to reconcile the piety of the psalter with the piety of Of the New Testament. Seven observations from Psalm 35 that help us understand why these are not the unrighteous prayers of a spiteful and vindictive man, but very prayers of the Spirit of Christ given to instruct us in our prayer. First, notice this prayer of David in Psalm 35 is a prayer that might sound somewhat obvious. But sometimes it's necessary to point out the obvious. I remember I'm hearing once a Bible professor make the point of this this great divergence between the the ethics of of David's prayers in the Psalms and the ethics of the New Testament, at which point I I asked um, what exactly he meant by that. And he he said, well, for one, we're not to take up our sword and kill our enemies anymore like David. Which I thought to myself, wasn't that the point of these Psalms? That David is not taking up his sword to kill his enemies, but is entrusting himself to God. Notice the opening verse of this psalm where David does not say, Lord, give me the spear and javelin that I may fight against those who fight me. But he says, Contend, O Lord, for me. You fight against those who fight me. You take hold of shield and buckler and rise for my help. And be, verse 3. My salvation. David does not ask to take up the spear and javelin against his pursuers, but ask God to. The very nature of this psalm is petitionary. It's asking God to act for him. And you see the same grammar throughout the entire psalm. Verse 4, let them... Let them, it it, it continues through verse 6 and then resumes in verse 8. Let the net that they hid ensnare them. His petition continues in verse 19. Let not those who rejoice over me, who are wrongfully my, my foes, who wink the eye and hate me without cause. Don't let them rejoice over me. Verse 23, awake, O Lord, and rouse yourself for my vindication. Verse 25, let them not say we have swallowed him up. Over and over, let them, let them not, let them. He's, he's praying, he's asking God, he's bringing petitions before him. And that same grammar of, of let them and let them continues in, in verse 26. In verse 27, the whole psalm is a prayer for God to act. This is not David seeking vengeance himself. This is not David taking matters into his own hands and taking up the sword himself, but this is David entrusting his cause to God. It's David turning to God in the midst of conflict and praying. Not fighting, but praying. As we saw a few weeks ago from Lord's Day 52, waging war on his knees... In prayer, asking God to fight for him. In the same way, the New Testament calls us to. Romans 12, beloved, do not avenge yourselves, but leave it to the wrath of God. For it is written, vengeance is mine, I will repay, says the Lord. That's what David is doing. He's entrusting his cause to God, not taking matters into his own hands, not seeking to manipulate the situation, not taking up the spear, or the javelin himself, but entrusting his cause to God through prayer. That's the first observation about Psalm 35. Psalm 35 is a prayer. Then notice second that Psalm 35 is a prayer of the king. The psalmist is not writing this psalm as an ordinary Israelite in a moment of road rage because he's been crossed. But the superscription, which is inspired, reminds us to read this psalm as a prayer of the king. The words of David remind us that Psalm 35 is a prayer of God's anointed in whom the kingdom of God is embodied. I mean, you could say David is the, the personification of the kingdom of God. He represents God's reign on earth. So much so that those who oppose him are not just opposing David, but they are opposing God himself. Which is why he says at the end of the psalm, in verse 27, let those who delight in my righteousness shout for joy and be glad evermore and say, great is the Lord.'" Who delights in the welfare of his servant. That little phrase, his servant, aligns the one praying with the cause of God. I take it as a reference to the king who is the representative of God's people in whose salvation they rejoice. In fact, this phrase, the servant of the Lord, is used in the superscription of Psalm 36 right after this, or of Psalm 18, earlier in the Psalms, both Psalms of David, as the king who serves in God's stead. And so when David prays this prayer, he's not praying it in his own person. He isn't praying it as a private citizen who's upset with someone who's crossed him he's praying it as the head and the king of God's people whose welfare is bound up in his. In fact, the same is true of all of the individual psalms of judgment. There's really three different categories of these um, judgment psalms. You, you have um, communal or, or national prayers for God's judgment against the enemies of the nation. Uh, we read one of those in, in Psalm 83 or, or Psalm 137. We have then prayers of, uh, in, in regard to societal enemies like um, Psalm 58, where the, the wicked are oppressing the, the weak and, and they're not judging justly. And then you also have um, individual prayers of judgment where one man uh, pleads for the judgment of his enemies. And of that last category, the, these individual psalms of judgment, every last one of them is of David. All of the individual psalms of judgment are Davidic. They concern God's king. So with Psalm 35, it's not a prayer of a private citizen against his own private enemies, but a prayer of the king against those who oppose God's kingdom. We, we could even say those who oppose God's Messiah who is in him. Psalm 35 is about much more than a private grudge like you or I might have against our neighbor, but is a prayer of the king with regard to those who hate God's kingdom and hate God's Messiah. Psalm 35 is a prayer. Psalm 35 is a prayer of the king. And the next we see Psalm 35 is a prayer for justice. Indeed, for promised justice. David is not over the top in what he prays, but his prayer is consistent with the biblical principles and the biblical promises of justice. Here you can notice the two main sections of the psalm where David actually prays for judgment. Verses 4 to 8, and then in verses 19 to 26, we see David the king pray for justice. For God to do precisely what he has elsewhere said he will do in keeping with his righteous character. Notice verse 4. Who does he ask to be put to shame and dishonor? Those who seek the life of the Lord's anointed. Down in, in verses um, 15 and 16, those who are, who are gathered together around him, mocking him. What he's doing here is he, he's praying the language, the ideas of Psalm Psalm 2. He's saying here, as the psalmist says at the very beginning of the psalter, hold them in derision, those who mock you and, and gather to gather against the Lord's anointed. Speak to them in your wrath. And let them be disappointed who, who devise evil against me, who plot against the king. And then in verse 5, when he says, let them be like chaff before the wind. That should sound familiar from our brief survey of the first few psalms because here he's simply praying Psalm 1, where the wicked are like chaff that the wind drives away. He's not inventing here his own standard of justice, but invoking God's. I notice how three times in the psalm, when he speaks of the plots of the wicked against him, there is this, this emphasis on, on the injustice of their plots. Verse 7 he says, without cause, they hid their net from me, or, or you could, you could um, paraphrase that, for no good reason, they, they uh, put this, this net out for me. He says it again, uh, without cause, they dug a pit for my life. He repeats that same phrase again in verse 19, saying, they hate me without cause, if you think about our sermon from this morning, um, That this phrase without cause is actually the same phrase that's used at the beginning of the book of Job for how Satan incites the Lord against him without cause. Like Job, there is, is nothing in David that deserves the things that he suffers. His, his prayer for vindication here is not a prayer for God to show favoritism, but for God to show Justice to let them fall into the trap that they had hidden for him. This is a prayer for proportionate justice, an eye for an eye. He notes in verse 19 that they are wrongfully his foes, that they do not seek peace, verse 20, but they devise words of deceit. They are false witnesses, he says in verse 21. And so he appeals to God who has seen all of this to vindicate him, verse 24, according to God's righteousness. He's praying for justice. He's appealing to the righteousness of God. Everything about this prayer is consistent with what God says in his word about his desire for justice. It's as if he's saying, Lord, this is what you've said elsewhere in your words. This is what I know of your righteous character, and so I'm appealing to the standard of justice that you have elsewhere written in your word, and on on that basis, I'm asking for you to act. He's praying God's word back to him. He's not inventing his own standard of justice and then seeking to enact it himself, but this is God's king desiring God's justice and praying for God to bring it. And to do so ultimately... For God's glory. That's the fourth thing that we see about this psalm. Psalm 35 is a prayer for God's glory. We see this in what follows each of those sections that pray for, for God's judgment, where right after verses 4 through 8, where David asks for his enemies to fall into the net that they've hid for them, he then says, then my soul will rejoice in the Lord." The end goal of his salvation through their judgment is God's glory. His soul will exult in God's salvation. All his bones will say, Lord, who is like you? Deliver the poor from him who was, was too strong for him, the, the poor and the needy from him who robs him. And then at the end of the psalm, right after that longer section, of verses 19 through 26, praying for justice, David says that his end goal in everything that he just prayed for is that those who delight in the king, those who who belong to God's kingdom, would shout for joy and be glad evermore, saying, Great is the Lord. And he says in the last verse of the psalm, Then my tongue shall tell of your righteousness and your praise all the day long. The end goal of the judgment David prays for is the eternal praise God. Of God, I'm James Hamilton has written a book called *The Glory of God in Salvation Through Judgment*, where he argues this is the, the central theme of the Bible: God saving His people through judgment, and in so doing, bringing glory to Himself. From Genesis three fifteen. All the way to Revelation 20, this is the the unifying theme of the Bible within which every psalm that prays for judgment fits, which is why this psalm ends the way it does, delighting in God who brings himself glory by saving his people through judgment. Or we see the same response of praise in the middle, verse 18. He says, I will thank you in the great congregation, in the, in the mighty throng. I will praise you. He's doing what we were called to do in our call to worship from Psalm 99. It says, The king, in his might, that's, that's God, he loves justice, he establishes equity, he executes justice and, and righteousness. So, next verse. Exalt the Lord our God, worship at his footstool, holy is he. The righteousness and justice and majesty and holiness of God should drive us to worship. As we see there in Psalm 99, so we see here in Psalm 35, the glory of God is the end goal of David's prayer for judgment. Judgment. One theologian says David's imprecatory words come from the the pure spring of unself-seeking zeal for God's honor. It's what we read in Psalm 119. Zeal for you consumes me. The glory of God is the highest end of this prayer. Perhaps the reason why we're sometimes so uncomfortable with these kinds of prayers Is because of the zeal out of which it is prayed is so far from being a reality in our own hearts. The glory of God, zeal for the the, the eternal praise of the God of justice is the highest end of this prayer. Notice as the glory of God is the goal of David's prayer for salvation through judgment, it then becomes a proper object Of corporate praise. We're in verse 18 and in verse 27, the the faithful together in, in, in the throng are praising God together for his answer to this prayer. This is true in so many of these types of psalms. You see it in, in Psalm 109, for instance, many more, where the, the, the climax and conclusion is, is the psalmist looking forward to answered prayer for justice and all the people gathering together around their king in the mighty throng in corporate worship, praising him for his justice and answering his prayer. I'm arl Dabney said, Righteous retribution is one of the glories of the divine character. If it is right that God should exercise it, then it cannot be wrong for his people to desire him to exercise it. Inasmuch as it is righteously inflicted by God, it must be right in him and must therefore be, when in his hand, a proper subject of satisfaction to the godly. He's saying, "If the justice for which this psalm prays is right, then the praise of verse 18 and the praise of verse 28 must be right too. That we can rejoice that God is a God of justice, that He enacts that justice in history through judging the wicked like these men of Psalm 35. Corporate praise that is shaped by the book of praise that God's word gives us, will rejoice in the God of justice. This is not incompatible with the Christian's call to love, but is in fact motivated by it. And we see that in the middle of the psalm, where David assures us that this prayer is not prayed from a vindictive spirit, but from one of love. The prayer of the king for God to glorify himself, the judgment of the wicked, is prayed from a heart of love. Notice how he says in verse 12 that when these malicious witnesses rose up against him, that they were repaying him evil for good. Uh, David has acted in kindness towards, him, uh, towards them, and, and yet they, they repay him not in kind with evil. He says in verse 13, when they were sick, he, he wore sackcloth, he afflicted himself with fasting, he, he visibly displayed his grief over the suffering that they were enduring. It says that he, he prayed with, with um, head bowed down on his chest, and really that's kind of an odd Hebrew phrase, it, it literally means something like uh, my, my uh, prayer bouncing back. And the idea, I think, is is that David is saying, as I bowed my head in prayer, it kept coming back to me. It kept bouncing back to me. He's speaking of of unceasing prayer and fasting for the ones who afflict him. I kept remembering to pray for you. And it's interesting, too, how this psalm at certain times will speak uh, uh, in the plural of those enemies, and then at other times of, of of a singular enemy. So maybe he's speaking here of Saul for whom he had affection. Maybe someone like Ahithophel. Whoever it is, the point is he has acted in love towards his adversary. And you can think too, of course, of of the the narrative of 1 Samuel. This is the way that David acts towards the Lord's anointed king, Saul. Refusing to enact justice and vengeance himself. Saying the Lord judge between us far be it for me to lift my hand against the Lord's King. We see that same heart in this psalm. Actually, we see it in, in Psalm 109 as well, where, where verses four and five are, are, are expressing very much the same sentiments as these verses here. Verse 14, he speaks of, of grieving for this enemy like a friend and a brother of mourning for him like one does when his mother dies. David is speaking of a deep, Familial kind of love for his enemy. Do you see then why I say Psalm 35 is not at odds with what we read in the Sermon on the Mount, but is in fact a demonstration of the very love that Christ there calls for? Daniel Simongo, an African theologian who's written his dissertation on these Psalms, he says of Psalm 35 particularly these verses here in the middle. The psalmist is here shown to be like the New Testament believer. He loves his enemy as he loves himself. He has blessed, verse 13, and prayed for his persecutors. And now those prayers must even include a prayer for their judgment which is not inconsistent with the loving posture of verse 13, but is an extension of it. Whereas they continue in their violent acts of injustice, they only bring further judgment upon themselves. And so for God to answer this prayer would be an act of mercy. The psalmist prays this prayer in love. A love ultimately for God, who will be glorified in this prayer's answer. Love for the people of God who are, uh, verse 20, are affected by these enemies and love for the enemies themselves who he says he has wept for and blessed. This prayer is not inconsistent with Christ's call to love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you but is a prime example of it. It is entirely consistent with the ethic of Christ in the New Testament and in fact, Christ himself there, praise it. If you, if you turn in your Bibles to John chapter 15, in John 15, Jesus is addressing his disciples on the night that he would be betrayed. And in verse 18, um, the, the heading in, in my Bible says the, the hatred of the world. He, he begins explaining to them how just as the world hates him, The Messiah of whom Psalm 2 speaks, that he would plot together and mock and and hate. Just as the world hates him, so it also would would hate them. And he explains that down for for the next several verses. And then in verse 25, he says that it must be this way. So that the word written in their law might be fulfilled, they hated me without cause. Quoting Psalm 35, 19. Meaning this prayer too, Christ took on his lips. It was a prayer of the Lord Jesus. Uh, one Old Testament commentator, John Gay, he, he notes the irony that, that many see this psalm as being um, in conflict with the teaching and spirit of Christ in the New Testament. Well, Christ himself actually quotes it. Um, Jesus apparently did not see any conflict between his call to love at the beginning of John 15 and his quotation of Psalm 35 At the end. In fact, Jesus quoted many of these Psalms of Judgment. He died with Psalm 31 on his lips. He quoted Psalm 41 and Psalm 69 in his final hours. Psalm 109 is applied by Peter in Acts chapter 1 to the the conflict between Christ and Judas. John Eaton says, While the story of the passion brings to the fore a spirit of forgiveness towards the adversaries. There remains the need for persistent and passionate prayer for the defeat of oppressors who pervert truth and rejoice in cruelty. The church hears in this psalm the voice of Christ, ever praying for the quiet in the land and for all who make cause with him. This is not an anti Christian prayer, but the very prayer of our Lord Jesus Christ. We're the same Christ who prays regarding the Roman soldiers who crucify him in ignorance. Father, forgive them. Also prays regarding those who hate him without cause. Let them be put to shame, who seek my life. Let them be like chaff before the wind. Vindicate me, O God, according to your righteousness, and let them not say we have swallowed him up, but let them be clothed with shame and dishonor who magnify themselves against me. Psalm 35 is a prayer of the Lord Jesus. And it's a prayer of the Lord Jesus, both in, in, that he himself enters into the experience of it, enters into the, 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 the suffering of the malicious witnesses, those he loved, betraying him and rising up against him to seek his life. But it's also a prayer of the Lord Jesus. And that he himself is the one who ultimately will bring about its fulfillment. Jesus will be the answer to Psalm 35. Ultimately, every prayer of the saints, both in the Old Testament and the New, for God to bring justice will be answered in the man Christ Jesus, who will come again to judge the living and the dead. Christ is the answer to David's prayer, who in 2 Thessalonians chapter 1 will come in flaming fire with his mighty angels to inflict vengeance on those who torment his people. From a New Testament perspective, Christ not only prays this psalm, he answers it. And actually, I think we even see hints of this in the psalm itself, or in, in verses from 5 and 6. Notice David prays for the angel of the Lord to pursue them. There's only three occurrences of this phrase, the angel of the Lord, in the Psalms. One of them was in Psalm 34 just before this. The other two are in verses 5 and and 6 of our psalm. And it's an interesting study to sort of trace this this concept of, of the angel of the Lord throughout the Old Testament because oftentimes the angel of the Lord is identified directly with God And yet this angel of the Lord is also, in some sense, distinct from God. Many believe a pre-incarnate manifestation of the second person of the Godhead, our Lord Jesus Christ. As if David is here praying, Lord Jesus, come in judgment and crush the serpent's head. And as he prays that, this is a prayer that we may pray with him. Psalm 35 is not only a prayer of the Lord Jesus, but a prayer of the church. And Christ makes that clear in the way that that in his quotation of this psalm in John 15, he is relating their suffering to his. He's saying the very same suffering that is directed against me is also going to be directed against you. And so as I pray this prayer, so may you. But I think Luke also makes this point in Acts chapter seven, where he presents the execution of Stephen with the very language of Psalm thirty-five. And it, it says at the end of Acts chapter seven that they, they gnashed their teeth at him. That appears to be an echo of Psalm thirty-five, sixteen, where they do the same thing here to God's King. By that echo, Luke is making the point. That the Church of Jesus Christ shares in the suffering of the Son of David. Therefore, as he prayed, so may we. I'm not regarding our own private enemies, but the enemies of Christ's kingdom. I'm not taking up literal sword and javelin, but taking up the weapon of prayer. For the God of justice to glorify Himself in judgment. We pray this prayer out of love for Christ's kingdom, out of a zeal for God's glory, and even as the psalmist here teaches us, out of love for those who hate us, as David here models, as Christ himself teaches. You pray Psalm 35 for your persecuted brothers and sisters in Christ. You pray Psalm 35, the church in India and North Korea and Somalia, for Christians in Afghanistan and Iraq and Egypt, for the 5,000 Christians that were murdered last year, for the 14,000 churches and Christian properties that were attacked, for the one in seven Christians throughout the world who were persecuted. You see, what Psalm 35 does is it, it awakens us from our apathy, and it, it calls us to pray. For the God of justice to make all things right as he sends his son to drive away the wicked like chaff, that those who delight in the righteousness of the king might be glad and shout forevermore, great is the Lord who delights in the welfare of his servants and all who belong to him. Even so, come Lord Jesus. Amen. Our Father in heaven, we pray, as our catechism says in Lord's Day 19, with uplifted head, eagerly awaiting the coming of Christ to make all things right. Eagerly waiting, the one who subjected himself to the malicious threats that this psalm speaks and, and so knows intimately the suffering of your people. We pray for him to come a second time as that angel of the Lord to drive away the wicked like chaff and say to our souls, I am your salvation. We long for him to come to judge the living and the dead, and we pray that that sure and certain hope, that sure and, and certain hope of, of, of Christ, the, the angel of the Lord, the second person of the Trinity, coming and, and saying to us, I am your salvation. We pray that that sure and certain hope, Lord, would enable your suffering saints throughout the world to love their enemies and to entrust their cause to you. As David here does, and as Christ does. And Lord, we pray that should there come a time for us or for our children or grandchildren in the generations to come where we might suffer in this way, that we would bear the weight of that cross with our eyes fixed on our coming King, loving those who hate us without cause, praying for their conversion. But if not, if they would continue obstinately in their rebellion for you to glorify yourself and the salvation of your people through the judgment of those who hate the king. All this we pray in Jesus' name.